turn with me to John 17. John chapter 17, we'll look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this incredible glimpse into the prayer life of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus. I pray that both this morning and the weeks to come that we would listen attentively to Your Word. That we would be in awe of who You are and who Your Son is. That we would come to know You and the One whom You have sent all the more clearly. And I pray we would also learn even more appropriately how to come to You in prayer. Learning from even the example of our Savior. We thank You. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if I was to ask for someone in this sanctuary this morning to recite the Lord's Prayer to me, I'm sure we would hear the words coming from Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. But that prayer might be better termed the model prayer or the example prayer. For in it, Jesus provides His disciples with an example. He says, pray then in this way, or pray in this manner. And Jesus' instruction leading up to the model prayer, by the way, uh, makes sure that we, by no means it was it ever intended to be a bunch of words merely to be repeated over and over again, as a Catholic might when they pray the rosary. Just praying these words over and over again is not the purpose which Jesus had given that prayer. As a matter of fact, he even said in that context, you know, don't be like the Gentiles who think they'll be heard for their numerous words, for their repetition, their meaningless repetition. And it's sad when the model prayer, the example prayer, is made into a meaningless repetition rather than providing us with examples of principles that ought to be uh, part of all the way in which we address the Lord. You know, Christian prayer addresses God as Father, our Father out in heaven. It involves adoration of who God is. Hallowed be Your name. It involves praise and thanksgiving and petitions regarding the coming of God's kingdom and petitions regarding the provision for daily bread, for our daily needs. Uh, petitions for the forgiveness of our sins and for our deliverance from temptation and evil. You see, there's principles there within the model prayer that are helpful. Jesus' intent wasn't that we just go around reciting our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and just repeating that over and over and over again. His intention was that we learn principles from that model prayer. Pray in this manner. Pray like this. 
and from those principles, our prayers would be encouraged and strengthened. It really is a true delight and treasure, the model prayer, when it's understood rightly. But besides being a better descriptor for the prayer found in Matthew 6, calling it the model prayer instead of the Lord's Prayer, it also allows me to reserve the title of the Lord's Prayer for this prayer in John 17. Some refer to this passage as the Lord's High Priestly Prayer, which is also a fitting title for it. Here in John 17, we get an extended glimpse into the content of Jesus' prayer life. Now, we know that Jesus engaged in prayer throughout his entire life. He prayed at the outset of his ministry. He prayed and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He prayed before he called the disciples. He prayed before and after the feeding of the 5,000. He prayed before the feeding of the 4,000. He prayed at his transfiguration. But we hardly ever know what Jesus said in his prayers. We have indication in the narrative that Jesus would even retreat off by himself often for prayer. And again, I think that's part of the key to this. Much of Jesus' praying wasn't done in the audience of others. He didn't pray for others so much that they would hear him, but that his Father in heaven would hear him. And so he often went off by himself, retreating to a solitary place to pray. You see this in Mark 1.35, Luke 5.16 are examples of that. He retreated often to go and pray by himself. But we get a couple of small glimpses into the content of Jesus' praying, and that's why I had those two passages read here this morning. What was the thematic link? Well, in both of those passages we heard read, we have a little, little tiny prayer from Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Father, thank you that you've revealed these children and you've hidden them from the wise and intelligent. Father, thank you that this is well pleasing in your sight. He then says in John 11, this is after the, this is with the moving of the stone away from Lazarus's crypt and Jesus raises his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then he says, I know you always hear me. <laughs> I said that for all these people who are here because now that they would know that you have sent me. Well, still not much content, right? I mean, real little glimpses into what Jesus prayed. Here in John 17, we get the longest prayer that we have recorded in Scripture from Jesus. We get a rare look into what Jesus prayed about. And we see here in the passage, Jesus truly being who He was, the God-man, fully God and fully man. He demonstrates his position as the mediator between God and man. For in the past several chapters leading up to this, Jesus has been giving God's word to his disciples. He's been appealing to his disciples on behalf of God the Father. And now what does Jesus do in prayer? He now appeals to God the Father on behalf of himself and his disciples. We see him as the mediator, the, the perfect mediator. And Jesus is not only the great high priest, but he's also the Lamb of God. It's interesting, there's so many types and figures and symbols of Jesus in the Old Testament that are pointed forward to into the New. And what's interesting with Jesus' sacrifice is that Jesus performs both the duty of the high priest as well as the duty of the sacrifice. <laughs> he consecrates himself as the sacrifice about to go to the cross. Remember, we're on the evening before, uh, of his arrest We're moments away from Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He's about to be arrested. He's going to be hauled off, given a sham of a trial, and he's going to be crucified. That's all just hours away. And so Jesus offers up this prayer of preparation and consecration with that impending act on the horizon. Jesus would consecrate himself not only as the priest who offers the sacrifice, but as himself, the sacrifice. He himself is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And after these first five verses, we'll see in coming weeks, he then would ask his father to prepare his disciples for the coming days. We see that in verses 6 through 19. And then after that, in verses 20 through 26, he also prays for those who would believe in him through their ministry, which would extend all the way to you and to me if you're a Christian here today. This prayer is utterly unique. And it's specific to Jesus' place and position as the God-man. This prayer differs from the model prayer in Matthew 6, in that there in Matthew 6, there are petitions that Jesus would never make for himself, right? Forgive us of our trespasses. Jesus never sinned. There's no way those words could actually be Jesus praying. He's instructing his disciples on how they ought to pray. And they, as we are sinners in need of God's ongoing forgiveness. But Jesus himself, the sinless one, was no need of asking for forgiveness, for he always did perfectly what he was called to do. And here in John 17, there are petitions that only Jesus could make. There are things here that only Jesus could say. For example, Jesus says at the end of this, Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was made. Before creation. Glorify me with the glory I had before creation. Before you made any of this. None of us can pray that prayer. None of us are qualified to ask that thing. So we know there are unique things about this prayer. We cannot make specific petitions that Jesus does for ourselves, so that would be inappropriate. Yet there are principles that we can learn from this prayer by listening to Jesus pray. And I'm certain this was the fact that caused the disciples to ask Jesus on the occasion, teach us to pray, Lord. I'm sure they did hear Him pray. And they're like, we need to learn how to go about this. So we're going to look at the first five verses of John 17 this morning and learn at least three principles along the way. Three principles. Number one is how to approach God. Number two, how to address God. And number three, how to appeal to God. How to approach God, how to address God, and how to appeal to God. Let's first of all consider this approach. How do we approach God? What do we learn from Jesus' approach? This whole passage begins, verse 1, Chapter 17, Jesus spoke these things, so the things he just got done, finished talking with his disciples about, and lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now this is proof that closed eyes are not the only way to pray. You know, looking up can sometimes just be a wonderful thing to use in prayer, to be right, especially if Jesus is out on the trip from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he looks up in the night sky and sees all of the stars that are all about him. Have you been out, you know, away from the city, camping sometime, and looked up into a cloudless night and seen all of the stars that are there? And only all that you can see with your, you know, the naked eye. There's so much more than you can't even see. But haven't you been humbled before by the grandeur of God, of a universe that God has created and He sustains? The stars that he not only made, but he calls them by name and he 
make sure that they stay in their particular places in the sky. I think our typical practice of closing our eyes and bowing our heads might be helpful in a world full of distractions. We might often find ourselves doing that because our minds would be easily lost on other stimulus that are all around us. But if praying is limited to moments in which my eyes are closed and my head is bowed, then there are countless opportunities for praying that I'm missing out on. In fact, how can you pray without ceasing if you must keep your eyes closed and heads bowed at all times? I wonder if this one position for prayer is ingrained in us because our parents taught it to us when we were kids. You know, since we learned that, then we teach all of our kids. Okay, bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands. You know, this is the way that we pray. I'm sure we did this, you know, for children as a kind of means of training wheels, right? We don't want them playing with toys while we're praying. We don't want them looking at the TV or considering something else. So we tell them, close your eyes, bow your head, fold your hands. We're pretty much trying to give them in a straitjacket and then asking them to pray. But what's sad is that when, you know, it's just like if a child is learning how to ride a bike, they have training wheels, right, that help them in the initial stages of that. But eventually, it's time for the training wheels to come off. It was helpful while you were trying to learn to ride the bike, but eventually the training wheels need to come off. And I wonder if we ourselves have sometimes missed untold opportunities to pray because we've somehow believed that the only means, the only manner, the only approach to God is one in which we bow our heads, close our eyes, and fold our hands. Instead of folding our hands, perhaps at times an open-handed position would be more appropriate. Maybe this sort of position would be more appropriate. Instead of sitting, sometimes perhaps a more appropriate position would be kneeling or even prostrating ourselves on the ground before God. We have all of those sorts of positions told throughout Scripture. The point is that God gave us bodies to be used for His glory. There's not just one posture or facial expression or tone of voice. I mean, if we're real in relationship with God, how about real in relationship with one another? I mean, if every time I talked to Bryn, it was always with the same tone of voice, it was always in the same position, I'm like, okay, Bryn, wait, just wait, okay. All right, now I'm ready to talk to you, Bryn. I mean, there would be some, you think there's something strange, like there's something odd and robotic about your relationship with me. So similarly with God, there are a multitude of postures and positions and approaches that can be acceptable. Certainly within the context of corporate worship, our wish as a church and as a congregation is that we glorify God in good order. There should be some order and organization to what's going on. Yet we also hope that there be freedom to worship our great and glorious God. We desire for God to be honored and magnified by our corporate praise. He gave us voices so we could sing praises to Him. He gave us voices so we could speak of His glory and His excellencies and we can give an occasional amen. We, he gave us hands that we can clap with. And He gave us all kinds of hands that can do all sorts of things, right? Not only clap, but can be raised, can be lowered, can be outstretched, can be clasped. Again, He gave us eyes. Let's use our eyes, too, to see the wonders that God has made and to give Him glory for what we see. Yes, it's a distraction if it draws your attention away from God. But if it draws your attention towards the Lord, then it's a good thing. Now, my point is not to give undue attention to the manner. It's not like as if now I'll have to go around like, okay, now you need to do it this way. That's not my point. As much as it is to say that sometimes we need to give some attention to something in order to provide a corrective. Sometimes we have to give a little bit of attention to it to provide a corrective. But certainly not so much that then that's all that we think about. I remember one of the worst experiences I had at seminary was reading a book in my preaching lab class. And the book was not that big and it encouraged the... Um, 
extreme amount of self-consciousness of the preacher as that his posture and his manner and his word choice and his gestures and on and on and on it went. So much so that I still remember the book telling me that I needed to put my hands underneath my rib cage and feel what it felt like when I breathe in and when I let out. I remember sitting there going, what am I reading? Praise the Lord, it was a very short book, so it was over very quickly. But my disappointment wasn't that you know you can't learn anything about gestures or about manner or about the words you use or about where you put your hands or all the rest of that or what tie to wear and all that stuff. Um, and by the way, I'm sorry if mine's not so great. But you know, it, it, the, the point is, it, to give a preacher that intense amount of thought about himself is actually a disservice to him. I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. Being natural, he's reading his book called Preaching and Preachers. Being natural, forget yourself. He says, be so absorbed in what you're doing and in the realization of the presence of God and in the glory and the greatness of the truth that you're preaching and the occasion that brings you together that you're so taken up by all this that you forget yourself completely. That is the right condition. And that's the only place of safety. That is the only way in which you can honor God. Self is the greatest enemy of the preacher, more so than in the case of any other man in society. And the only way to deal with self is to be so taken up with, so enraptured by the glory of what you're doing that you forget yourself altogether. The point isn't that I'll make us micromanage and like, okay, now I have to think, on this particular prayer, do I raise my hands or lower my hands or fold my hands? Or Again, it's not like some magical mantra that your position now makes the prayer acceptable. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But to encourage us to be natural in our communication with God. To point out that it's unnatural if the only time we pray is with folded hands and bowed heads and closed eyes. This is my question. Is your communication with God real and genuine? Is it real and genuine? When you engage in conversation with the Lord, does your choice of words, your body language, your posture become unnatural? Should I come up to you this morning with a scowl on my face and then speak of the joy of the Lord being my strength? You you would think that's strange. It doesn't fit. You doubt my sincerity. Should a doctor bring you bad news regarding some testing that you've undergone and he does it in a silly, joking manner? You'd be offended. It's not the appropriate mood or attitude or posture or gesture to the the news that's being delivered. Should a comedian come in and tell a whole bunch of sad stories, everyone would want a refund, right? It doesn't fit the occasion. Our manner ought to fit the setting and occasion. Wednesday this last week, we had final inspection with fire inspector on the buildings back here and we're walking the the decks and walking into classrooms and he kind of walked a little bit ahead of me and I'm just still walking on the deck. I see him walk down the steps. He walks back up. He starts walking towards me. He says, "Um, well, the ramps here are an inch and a half too narrow and the steps are an inch too high. And my heart sank. I mean, I walked over there. I'm like, look at this. I'm like, I didn't see him pull out a ruler or anything. I'm like, what is this guy? Like, he's a human ruler or something? He knows the feeling of a step when he goes down the step? So I'm sitting there like, I, I, I get over to the steps and I'm like, what? And then he goes, you can't take a joke, can you? Oh, I about died. I about died on the spot. Now, Becky Staggs is also there at the same time. And I was speechless. I couldn't say a word. And she says, you know, we normally like a good joke, but there's, this isn't really a joking manner for us right now. 
We're three weeks into the school year, and Pastor Justice wants this thing done. And you suffer several setbacks, and you have strange codes that confront you along the way that you didn't make provision for. All of a sudden, the comment isn't received as a joke. You see, our manner has to fit the circumstance. When we hear the tax collector that Jesus praises and says he went away justified, he did have his eyes down. He said he couldn't lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It was appropriate for that man to be looking down and beating his breast. Why? He's under conviction of sin. He's repenting before God. He's asking God to be gracious to him, the sinner. And certainly that's an appropriate posture for us to take as well. To recognize the supremacy of God and show Him that sort of reverence and awe and respect and be humbled before Him and on our face before Him in prayer. Yet, simultaneously, for those who are in Christ, we've now been given bold access to God our Father. And He bids us to come and to dialogue with Him about everything. There ought to be this mix of reverence and joy in the way in which we relate with our Heavenly Father. If my child, every time they addressed me, had their eyes on the floor and couldn't even look at me, I have an issue with that. There needs, there's relationship. Yes, by all means, be humble and reverent. By all means. We're talking about the God of the universe, the Almighty. But simultaneously, He calls us His children. He adopts us as sons. He wants us in this loving, warm relationship with Him. And so, for purposeful, we can open our eyes in prayer In our eyes, what we see can prompt thankfulness and gratitude to God. We're told in Romans 1 that even God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through what has been made. So we can look around us and consider God's amazing invisible attributes, like His power and His wisdom and His intelligence and His creative majesty. Perhaps some of us need to take some nature walks and contemplate the wisdom, care, and providence of God. Perhaps some of us need to look through a photo album and every face we see gives us a prompting to pray for that individual. Perhaps some of us need to look at a globe and let our finger trace through countries across the world. And as our finger falls to one, pray for that country and the missionaries that are there and the spread of the gospel to that place. Might you this week endeavor to talk with God with more sincerity? That's my question. More sincerity, more realness, more transparency. Point two, how to address God. What do we learn from Jesus' address? Jesus calls him his father. See this twice. Did you also hear it in those other little short excerpted prayers from the other Gospels? Father, 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 Father in heaven, heavenly Father, Father, Father. This is also the same thing that he gives us in the model prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. This is how you ought to pray. Pray in this manner. Pray like this. Our Father. What does the term Father communicate? Well, at least two realms of thinking, I believe. First is that it communicates reverence and submission. It makes me think of God's almightiness, His omnipotence. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Jeremiah 14.22, Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, Jehoshaphat prays, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? 
And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. I love the term Father here because it denotes reverence and respect for the greatness of God. But the term also is wonderful because it communicates another level here, and that is of love and affection and relationship and confidence and provision. Consider the Sermon on the Mount. Randy did this a few weeks ago. How many times you have this phrase, Father, coming up throughout the sermon? He says in Matthew 6, But you, when you pray, go to your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. He says the Gentiles think that they're going to be heard for the many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows your need before you ask Him. A little bit later in Matthew 6, verses 25 and 26. For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than them? Then it says in verse 31, don't worry then, asking what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Matthew 7, verse 9, What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, your heavenly Father, give what is good to those who ask Him? So this note of reverence and respect and awe, combined with this note of relationship and provision and care, You see, Jesus was God's Son from all eternity. By the nature of the triune God, who God is, one God, three persons, Jesus had every right to refer to God as Father. As Father, by means of ontological essence, this is the relationship that the triune God enjoys throughout all of eternity. But now Jesus encourages us to refer to God the Father as our Father. Now, we can only cry out this way because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus can do it because of who He was. We can only do it because of who we are in Him. Who we are in Christ. Romans 8, 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Again, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, Crying, Abba, Father. Abba is an interesting word, right? It's like Daddy. Crying out, Daddy. To the Almighty God. Recognizing Him, reverencing Him, respecting Him, holding Him in holy awe, and yet being able to come to Him as a little child comes to his or her Daddy. Jesus refers to God the Father is Father throughout this prayer. He also, in verse 3, calls Him the only true God. See that in verse 3? The only. This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God. Here He indicates the uniqueness of God. God is not one God among many. He is not merely the best of a pantheon of gods. He alone is God. There is no other claimant. There is no one else. He's the only one. All the rest are fakes. All the rest are imposters. All the rest are cheap imitations. The invention of man. God alone is the one true God. Therefore, prayer offered to any other God 
is an effort in futility because they're not gods at all. Psalm 115, which I read from verse 3 a minute ago, our God's in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. The next verse, verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They can't make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone trusts in them. And then I love the, the turn here. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This one true God has revealed Himself as existing as three co-eternal, co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, such that Jesus can say, if you have known Me, you know the Father also. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. That's John 14. He also say in John 10, I and the Father are one. So we address God our Father as Jesus instructs us and because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Thirdly, how to appeal to God. How do we appeal to God? What can we learn from the appeal that Jesus makes in this text? Well, he makes one request really in it in these first five verses. And it's given both in verse 1 and in verse 5. In verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verses, read 4 and 5 with me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What's his request? Glorify the Son. Glorify your Son, Father. That's what he's asking for. And while Jesus here is, you say, praying for Himself, His praying is not even close to our selfish prayers. (laughs) Even note in it, glorify me with the glory that I had before creation. So, the fact that I'm here now is due to my submission to this incredible plan of redemption. I forsook some of that glory for a time. I'm now asking, Father, the time has now come to glorify me with the glory I had with you before. And, by the way, again, another note that doesn't make it selfish is he says, that I might glorify you. (laughs) Glorify the Son, that glory might rebound to you and to your account. Certainly our petition wouldn't be the same. I'm not encouraging all of us, glorify me, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world began. We wouldn't say that. We don't have the glory from before. And our chief desire, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. We desire that... All glory go to Jesus. And all that glory we know from 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus will turn around and give unto the Father. But the reasons behind Jesus' appeal are reasons that we ought to learn from. He gives three reasons as to why He asks for this. Why is He asking to be glorified with His Father? And I think if you get at the reasons behind His request, these reasons are helpful to us when we make requests of various kinds. This is how we can find great confidence in prayer. This is when we know when we pray in Jesus' name that we're praying in accordance with what Jesus desires and what He Himself would ask of the Father if given a similar situation. There are at least three reasons that Jesus had confidence that God the Father would not merely hear but answer His prayer here. So here's my three reasons. The first is this. He knew this was the Father's plan. He knew this was the Father's plan. He says to Him, The hour has come. 
Repeatedly through the Gospels, we have come across the phrase, it was not yet his hour. John 2.4, he says, when he's asked to make water into wine at first, he says, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. John 7, Jesus says to them, go up to the feast with yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. John 7.30, they're seeking to seize him. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. We're now with Jesus about to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. From that place, he will be arrested. They will come and take him. Why? Because his hour has now come. No one can touch him before his hour has come. But now the hour has come. And so Jesus prays to his Father saying, I glorified you on earth. I fulfilled the work you've given me to do. He delivered the message that he had been given. He taught and perfectly lived out that message. Even from the age of 12, we hear Jesus telling his mother, I must be about my father's business. He told his disciples, my food is to do the will of my father. And in a few hours, when he's hanging from the cross, he'll say, it is finished. Jesus' request here to glorify the Son is just to, is in keeping with God the Father's plan to complete the work that the Father had given Him to do. Now the hour has come. Now, verse 5, glorify Me with the glory I had with you from eternity. I believe what Jesus is doing here is He's compounding a couple of coming events. I believe that He's considering both the cross and the resurrection and ascension in this. He's asking the Father, you can say it this way, glorify me in my sufferings and glorify me after my sufferings. Be glorified and glorify me in the midst of the cross and what is to follow the cross. You see, because to the human vantage point, the cross is nothing but shame. But in God's hands, this instrument of shame becomes an instrument of glory. Jesus sees the cross as the means by which His glory will be put on display. Yes, it's an instrument of death and shame, but it's through that instrument that God, or Jesus would rescue His people and accomplish His Father's will. He would be crushed so that those who believe in Him might be blessed. I like the way that A.W. Pink says it. This was the greatest hour of all. Now is the hour. Now is the time. This is the greatest hour of all. Because most critical and pregnant with eternal issues. Since hours began to be numbered. He says this is the most important hour of all the numbers that have, all the hours that have been numbered. It was the hour when the Son of God was to terminate the labors of His important life by a death still more important and illustrious. It was the hour when the Lord of glory was to be made sin for His people and bear the holy wrath of a sin-hating God. It was the hour for fulfilling and accomplishing many prophecies, many types, many symbols, which for hundreds and thousands of years had pointed forward to it. It was the hour when events took place which history, which the history of the entire universe can supply no parallel. When the serpent was permitted to bruise the heel of the woman's seed. When the sword of divine justice smote Jehovah's fellow. When the sun refused to shine. When the earth rocked on its axis. But when the elect company were redeemed when heaven was gladdened and which brought and shall bring to all eternity glory to God in the highest. You see, that hour which would appear to be the greatest tragedy would actually be Jesus' greatest triumph. 
this was the Father's plan. Secondly, he could pray this way because it was the Father's purpose. It was the Father's purpose. He's requesting that God the Father bring events to pass that are in keeping with the very intention Jesus was sent in the first place. He's saying, bring this to pass because this is exactly the reason for which you sent me. Verse 2, you've given him authority over all flesh. You've given me authority over all flesh to grant eternal life to all that you have given me. Now, with human kings, oftentimes authority is used to, to lord it over subjects. But Jesus says, I was given authority to give something. I was given authority to give eternal life. In the accomplishment of Jesus' mission, he would give eternal life to those who were given to him by the Father. He says, I came to give eternal life to those whom you have given to me. The picture here is there's a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. And God the Son has come to redeem the gift. He's come to purchase it, to lay down his own life for it. And as I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, we have this wonderful reciprocation where then the Son gives this love gift back to the Father. It's this like beautiful intertrinitarian love gift. It, what's so incredible about it to me is it real, makes me realize real quick that I'm not the center of the universe. No. As if I needed to be told that. But I'm not the center of the universe. Sometimes I live that way. But I'm not. Even in the work of salvation, what's ultimately important is not my salvation, but God's glory. It's the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. This is all wrapped up in. The accomplishment of Jesus' mission would mean that He would give eternal life to those whom were given to Him by the Father. Again, great point to just take a second to say, the Gospel is offered to all, but only some come. Who are the ones that come? Those who are drawn by the Father and given to the Son. Those whom the Son then died for and paid the penalty of sin for. He then provided His righteousness to them. You see, because by nature, we're all dead in trespasses and sins. We're all guilty. We're all incapable of pleasing God. All have turned aside. All have become useless. There is no one good. Not even one. So if anyone is to be saved, nothing less than a miracle must transpire. Nothing less than God's intervention is required. God not, must not only provide forgiveness through His Son, but He must grant spiritually blind, the spiritually blind new eyes so that they can see Jesus. And they have to be given, these people who were before had hard and calloused hearts, have to have that heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. They have to be, in the words of John 3, born again. Again, Jesus said in John 6, All that the Father gives to me, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. And the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him. He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Now does he now say, I come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Then Jesus says here in John 17:3, eternal life. What is eternal life? So I came to com- complete this task. You told me to come to live my life, to die in place of those whom you have given to me. I'm coming to fulfill that. Now he says, this is what eternal life all is. Knowing the Father as the one true God and Jesus Christ sent by Him. Perhaps you've felt blessed by the pe- some person you've been able to know. Some person of... Um, Maybe someone who's famous or somehow you've been like, wow, I'm privileged to actually know that individual in some way, shape, or form. But there's nothing that compares to the blessing of knowing the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father's purpose in sending His Son to die and rise again was to reverse the effects of the fall. You see, what happened there in the Garden of Eden was a separation between us and holy God bringing us out of death into life, bestowing upon us eternal life. And what is eternal life? To know God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. Drawing us out of hiding in shame into rich relationship and fellowship in His glory. Notice that God is not merely the means to eternal life. He is the substance of eternal life. This is eternal life. Not just this is how you come to get eternal life, while it also is the case that eternal life comes from God, but eternal life is all wrapped up in knowing God. It's all about relationship with Him. So in one sense, this is why we can say as Christians, every Christian already has eternal life. And the Bible describes it that way. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. It's a present possession. You already have it. By the way, this is one of the reasons why... I believe so strongly. If you are saved, you are always saved. Once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints. Preservation of the saints. However you want to call it. The point is this. If you have eternal life, when does eternal life end? Never. Otherwise, you don't have it. Right? The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Then he says in John 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And that's when he says, I and the Father are one. So there's a sense in which all Christians presently enjoy eternal life. And yet there's another sense in which the Bible talks about the fullness of eternal life still yet to be completed. Something we're still yet waiting for. Titus 3.7 explains that we've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's something we're still hoping for as it relates to eternal life. Luke, Luke 18, verses 29 and 30, speaks of us receiving eternal life in the ages to come. Again, it seems that we're awaiting the fullness of eternal, eternal life. Now, consider this. These, both these concepts biblically make perfect sense in light of John 17, 3. What is eternal life? Knowing God the Father, right? The one and only true God and His Son whom He has sent. Well, if that's what eternal life is, do Christians presently know the Father? Yes, we do. By grace, we know the Father. But do we know Him completely, utterly? No. So there's still an element in which we're waiting for the fulfillment of all of this. You see, knowing God is much more than just intellectual apprehension. Not just knowing that God exists. There are many theists that are not safe. They don't have eternal life. Even the demons, I think Randy mentioned this in Sunday school this morning, even the demons believe and shudder. You know, they believe that there's one God. They know there's one God. They're not in any sense saved. They acknowledge that there is a God, but they don't love Him or worship Him or have relationship with Him. You see, 
Knowing God is more than intellectual apprehension. It involves personal relationship, fellowship, trust. Because the greatest thing that was lost in the Garden of Eden was not, you know, not having to, you know, have a lot of sweat or increased pain in childbirth or all of those things. The greatest thing that was lost was close fellowship with God. And that was due to sin. You see, the ultimate gift of the Gospels, John Piper would say, is God Himself. God Himself is the ultimate gift. I've got to read a quote from him. This is what he says. This is crucial to see. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. There's no evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. That's a perfectly natural desire, but it's not a supernatural one. Piper's saying, it's obvious. Why wouldn't you want to escape hell? I mean, certainly we shouldn't want to go there, but that's just a natural desire not to go to hell. That's not a supernatural desire for God. It doesn't take a new heart to want the psychological relief of forgiveness or the removal of God's wrath or the inheritance of God's world. All these things are understandable without any spiritual change. You don't need to be born again to want these things. The devils want these things. It's not wrong to want them. Indeed, it's folly not to want them. But the evidence that we've been changed is that we want these things because they bring us to the enjoyment of God. That is the greatest thing Christ died for. This is the greatest good in the good news. See, this is what the Gospel is. That we might, through Jesus' death and resurrection, be made to see and value and love Him who is infinitely worthy of our praise and of being glorified. You can kind of map this out this way. False Gospels can come from a multitude of different directions, but here's at least a couple. If you think the gospel is something of one of the lesser gifts rather than God himself, if you're pursuing Christianity out of something other than God, there's a problem. Because we all know you can be thankful for a gift without being thankful to the giver. Maybe parents, you've experienced that a little bit before with your children. Right? They like the thing, but they didn't show appropriate affection towards the person who gave the thing. God is not honored if you seek his gifts without seeking him. I think this is what he was behind the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, he feeds the 5,000. The next day, everybody comes out wanting more bread. And Jesus doesn't give them any. That you're seeking the bread rather than seeking what the bread was supposed to point you to. Me, the bread of life. This is why forgiveness is sought. It's not to merely get out of hell. It's to restore a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That a relationship be made right. Same thing is true. It's not the gospel that just results in religious activity. Because anybody can join a church to feel accepted by a group. Anyone can sing a song just to sing without any love for the Lord. You can give money to feel good about yourself. You can participate in missions in an effort to see the world. You just want to go on a big, you know, worldwide trip or something of that nature. Any of those activities can be falsely motivated. And the Pharisees were were guilty of that sort of thing all the time. J.C. Rowell says it this way. Alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die. While they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ, you give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with Him. You do not love Him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a wearisome and burden to your heart. Oh, repent, repent and change before it's too late. The third thing that makes sure that Jesus' prayer here is 
something that his father will answer to is that it would rebound to his father's glory. Jesus again in verse 1 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He says, glorify the son that that would rebound to your glory. And that's exactly what happened at the cross in the following resurrection. Jesus showed perfect obedience to his father. He showed love for sinners. He showed perfect spotless righteousness. He showed His power over death, His power over sin, His power over Satan. All of that was put on public display. He would receive glory. And that glory would rebound to the glory of His Father. Because you see at the cross, the attributes of God are put on perfect display. Here the holiness and righteousness of God meet with God's love, grace, and mercy. His wrath is poured out against sin. And His love and mercy and grace are extended towards sinners all through the shedding of Jesus' spotless, perfect blood. Jesus says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. He's about to meet the cross. He says it's time for this meeting with death and the subsequent victory over death that's to come following disobedience all the way to death on a cross. It will now become time for the Father to glorify the Son, to exalt Him, and to give Him the name above every other name, as Philippians 2 says. Jesus would soon return to that glory that He had from all eternity. This is yet another testimony that Jesus is God. Jesus saying, Return me to the glory that I had with you before the world was made. And now we can maybe say there would be a new dimension to that glory. The glory that would come through the Son's perfect obedience and submission to the Father, including everything, even death on a cross and His resurrection. It's fitting that the chief longing here of Jesus is shown in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself. May I enjoy Your glory in Your presence. It's fitting that that be Jesus' highest desire, for that's what ought to be our highest desire as well, to enjoy His glory forever. So in these few verses, we learn a few things about our approach, about our address, and about how we might appeal to God in prayer. And certainly, this is the person to learn it from. The one who's most qualified to instruct us on prayer is the one who has spent all of eternity communing in the triune relationship within the Godhead. In coming weeks, we'll consider Jesus' prayer for His disciples and also as it relates to those whom they ministered to, which eventually gets to us as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your marvelous, marvelous grace and mercy. Thank You that we can call You Father. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are real in our relationship with You. Pray that there would be transparency and openness. That we would see opportunities for praying throughout, throughout our days. Certainly it's appropriate to spend time in silent meditation and quietness with eyes closed and heads bowed. But Lord, may we be people who see life as, a, as an ongoing communing with You. Thank You that whether our eyes are opened or closed, we can speak with You and converse with You. Thank You that You listen to us. Thank You that You have given us this access to Your throne. 
I pray, Lord, that You would continue to work in each of our lives. And thank You for the gift of prayer. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.